Imagine that Eric and Trevor, neither one of them had looked like this when they lifted this thing. Just me. If you're new in the last three weeks, you're probably like, who's that dude standing up there right now? We're all wondering that question too. If you're new, welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. And uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. If you have a, like again, a smartphone. And then you click on live, it'll bring us up. Oh, there you go. There's a slide. Uh, and it'll bring us up by where we're at, and you can get the, the notes and the verses and everything we go through this morning. Also, if you've been here the last three weeks and you haven't ever seen me before, you're probably thinking, this guy talks really fast compared to everybody else. And, and yes, I do. Uh, I am holding a baby bottle. Uh, every year we, we help out a group called CareNet. And what, what CareNet does is one of their fundraisers for the year is they give a bunch of different churches and nonprofits baby bottles that we encourage you to take home. And what you do with these over the next three weeks is you don't fill it with milk and like, you know, this, that's not what you do. You fill it with change. So if you have an like spare change, you know, bills, paper, fit in them as well. And you can, we bring those back in like three weeks and we give them to CareNet. All the money from these bottles go to CareNet. And what CareNet does is they help out a lot of uh, young girls in our community who have gone through some traumatic circumstances. So if you'd be so kind, grab one of these on the way out with your family over the next three weeks and just fill it up with some change, bring it back, we'll give it to CareNet. Ta-da. You're sitting over there going, I can't see what happened to the bottle. That was totally lame. If you're playing softball, bring your money. Britt needs to uh, pay off his credit card bill. <laughs> so bring your money. Uh, Financial Peace University, again, as Ed says, starts Wednesday night. By this week, you should have saved 88 bucks, 8 bucks a week. I was talking to somebody, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I can afford that coming up next week. And I'm all, dude, I've been telling you for two months, 8 bucks a week. They're like, yeah, I know. That's why you need to go to the class. And you'll be okay. Now, on all of your chairs this morning, you have, or most of the chairs, you have a card like this. And this is my last announcement before we get going. Uh, what we're trying to do is update our database, not so we can send people to your house to knock on your house and say, Aaron, like some cookies. Can you make some for him? Uh, but th- this is so we can just keep our stuff up to date. We need to, we, we went over to a, a new system, and so we're trying to make sure everything we have is current. And so th- this is, lets us know who you are. We also have a list in the back. It's like a sign-up. Sheet. And on there, if you went through the gospel class and you signed up to become a member, uh, there's a membership list. So look at the membership list. If your name isn't on that list, sign up on the thing next to it and we'll get a hold of you and make sure that happens. If you went through the gospel class and you never got an interview with an elder, uh, sign up on that as well. We'll get together and meet with you and get all that taken care of so we can start the new year out right. When you're done with this, at the end of service, there'll be greeters at the side doors. If you could just give this to one of them, they won't pocket it and take it home and like you know, get a new social security card in your name or anything, but they'll just give it to us so we can keep your confidential information where it's supposed to be, all right? Okay, apparently. Yes, Aaron, great. Why don't you guys stand there, you're reading God's Word. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and it says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, this morning we as a people ask that we would be those who live our lives with these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that they would draw us uh, more closer to who you are, that our hearts and lives would love you and show that by how we live and that you above all be glorified by what we do. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so it's a new year. We're going to start a new study. It's, it's going to be a little topical, but it's also exegetical, which means we're going to go through Scripture. Hope it's deep. Hope you learn a lot. We're going to start the Book of Lamentations in eight weeks. So before Easter, we're going to start the Book of Lamentations. You're like, yay, I've been waiting for the most depressing book in the Bible. I'm so excited for that one coming up. Uh, now, whenever we, we cover topics, I usually try to take you through, through Scripture so you can understand it better, so we can understand Christ better. It's one of the reasons we're looking at what we look at over the next eight weeks. I believe that there are certain things in Scripture that if you're reading it in the first century or you grew up in a first century Jewish home, you would automatically know some of this stuff because you're just ingrained into you. But we are 2,000 years removed from most of the historical things of Scripture, so sometimes it's good to get a deeper idea of what's going on when Jesus says certain things. It's kind of like imagine 2,000 years from now, someone unearths the magazine, like an Entertainment Weekly, and it shows that the number one show in America is like American Idol. And they're like, American Idol? What is, what, after years of translating, they find out it says American Idol. It's like, what is that? Did they bronze people and stick them on, on top of podiums? You know, did they marble? That's just sick. Well, it is sick. It's American Idol. You know? but, so, you know, or, or you read the, you know, the number one sporting event of the year is the Super Bowl. They're like, man, did everybody in America just eat all the time? Because it's the Super you know, it's, it's like if you don't live in, in the culture, you, some of the things just do not translate co- correctly. Now, Christianity is, should be distinctly Jewish. It is what Judaism should have become. And I believe we have lost much of our heritage because we have seen scriptures, Jesus, the church, and history from a Western perspective. And our Western perspective paints a lot of broad strokes of apathy towards anything Jewish. Now, I'm not telling you you should all go out and get yarmulkes or go to the Wailing Wall or, God forbid, eat kosher because bacon is like a gift of God to his people. Uh, But there are certain things in scripture that I think we would do well to remember. So part of my job is to help translate some of this stuff for you so it makes sense. So the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at a series I'm calling The Missing Words. Understanding the way Jesus taught at certain times that maybe we might have overlooked to know him better. Because the goal of scripture is Jesus. John 5, 39 and, and 40 says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that testify about me. And you refuse to come to me to have life. We want to come to Jesus to have life, and the scriptures are all about him. So when I say the missing words, what do I mean? Do I mean some other gospel of Jesus Christ? No, no. This, is, this is not a cult. I'm not going to feed you all grape juice and give you tinfoil hats and all the same tennis shoes. What, what I mean essentially is this. In 1946, there's some Bedouin shepherd boys. They're running around in the hills. They peek into this cave, and they make an astonishing discovery. There are pottery jars full of scrolls that had been hidden for 2,000 years. These boys had stumbled on the most important biblical archaeological find of the 20th century. These things are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in 1948, news of this discovery of these ancient biblical manuscripts and Jewish writings from around the first century, they dumbfounded the scholarly world. Everybody wants to get their hands on them to look at them. So you fast forward nearly 40 years from when they were found, and many of these manuscripts were still inaccessible to any but like this few team, this team of few researchers. This irritates scholars everywhere because they all want to get their hands on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now into this scene comes a young graduate student. His name is Marty Abegg. And Marty Abegg was a student of Emmanuel Tove, who was the editor of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so, because he's, he's a student of Manuel Tobe, Manuel Tobe brings him in. He's actually get his, able to get his hands on the Dead Sea Scrolls and look at them. Now, in the course of doing research, Marty Abegg, depending on who you talk to or, or what you read, he stumbles on a way to reconstruct a lot of the text that was very hard to reconstruct. And in 1991, he publishes a section for all the world to see. Now, Marty Abegg talks about his discovery very humbly by saying this, the effect was like a thunderbolt, you know, because he's so amazing. The cat was out of the bag. 
And his instructor, Emmanuel Tov, felt his hand had been forced, and so he then releases the rest of the scrolls. Now what happens, a little bit later in that same year, there's a meeting of scholars about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is the first time that Emmanuel Tov and Marty Abeg have met again. And everybody's wondering what's going to happen because Emmanuel Tov probably feels betrayed because he brings his prize student in and his prize student releases the thing that Emmanuel Tov was trying to hold on to so closely to the rest of the world. So Emmanuel Tov, he's a very stately, he's a balding Jewish scholar. He walks up to Marty Abeg, his old student, and he says three words. He says, Benim Gadalti Veramumti. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's exactly what I would have said, right? If, if I was totally betrayed by somebody, that just says it all. I'm going to write that down and keep that so I can run around with that. Yeah, right? No, okay. Open to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Benim Gadalti Veramumti actually translates as, I have raised children and brought them up. You think, oh, how sweet. His teacher's saying that his pupil has grown up. He's now a man. He's doing what God created him to do. It's so wonderful. Not exactly. Uh, the young translator, Abeg, recalls this from his Jewish studies. And he realizes it's a passage from the book of Isaiah. So he gets to his hotel room. He opens, opens the Bible. And he opens to Isaiah 1, verse 2. And only, it's only then that he really understands what his teacher was saying, that it wasn't praise. It's actually a rebuke. And this is Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 2. He says, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And so it's like, oh, what Emmanuel Tov did is he uses a classic rabbinical technique. I call it the missing words or fill in the blank. You quote part of a verse or a section of scripture that references a whole other section of scripture. Emmanuel Tov was an observant Jew and knowledgeable all in the scriptures, and he expressed his sense of betrayal in a powerful but subtle way, a way he knew his student, who was very smart, would eventually figure it out and get the context of the message. Now, believe it or not, Jesus taught this way at times as well. And I thought it would be fun as we start a new year, be interesting and helpful in knowing how Jesus taught to see the few ways that he has done this. So we're going to do that over the next eight weeks. I'm going to show you eight different ways that Jesus did this. Get a deeper picture of him. So you ready? You're what? We're still talking? Yes. You ready? Yes. Okay, open to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem as a king. He's riding on the donkey uh, as, as a king. <laughs> and as he, as he comes to Jerusalem, this is what's called the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover. Passover was a holiday for Israel in commemorance and remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery and bondage and death in Egypt. God sends a succession of plagues upon the Egyptians for how they treated God's people and God. The final, most devastating plague is what's called when the angel of death came into Egypt and took each firstborn male child that was not in covenant relationship with him. So you would ceremonially show you had a relationship with God by taking the blood of a lamb and you would put it on your door frame of your house and then the angel of death would pass over your home, hence Passover. The blood of the lamb brought your family from death into life and it demonstrated that you trusted God. So the Feast of Passover was a memorial of this event. It's literally been a couple thousand years, and they've been doing this every single year, that God passed over his children, he spared them from death, brought them to life, took them out of slavery, and brought them into freedom. Now, during Passover, Passover lambs are typically chosen on a Monday for a Friday sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, the Apostle Paul tells us, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Jesus was our Passover lamb sacrificed for our sin to bring us from death to life, from slavery into freedom. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 21, probably enters Jerusalem on a Monday. He is being set aside as the Passover lamb of God. 
Now, Passover, it is enormous. Literally, during this time, there are about a quarter million sacrifices that took place in the temple during Passover. The amount of blood that flowed out of the temple was just staggering, staggering. And it all points to who Christ was and what he was going to do. There's usually one sacrifice for a family of 10 to about 10 people. So there's two to three to four million people crowding into the streets of Jerusalem at this time. In Matthew, you see that Jesus has just healed a couple blind men from the Gospel of John and John 11. You see, he also did his greatest miracle other than his own resurrection by raising his buddy Lazarus from the dead. And the result of him doing all these great miracles is the religious people are irritated at him and they want him dead and they put a bounty on his head and Jesus rides into Jerusalem with great courage and personal strength in front of thousands of eyewitnesses. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 7. So they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks in them, and Jesus sat on them. So Jesus is now going to enter Jerusalem on this donkey. This is very, very important because when a leader came on a donkey, it's for the purpose of peace. The leader came in on a horse. It's to stir up an army for war. Let's go beat these people up and kill them and, and take over. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes on a donkey for the purpose of peace. He comes very humble because if you ever run on a donkey, it can be a very humbling experience. So he comes very humble. He comes for the purpose of peace. He doesn't come to liberate Israel from Rome. He comes to liberate people from their sin to bring peace between men and God again. So it goes, the text goes on and it says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, and they shout three things. Number one, Hosanna to the son of David. This is very important. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna in the highest. These are some very significant things that are being said. Now in 1 Kings, I know I'm going to give you a lot of information, but you've got to follow me to get where we're going with the missing words so you understand it. In 1 Kings 9 through 11, what you see is how Israel, under the reign of King Solomon, starts to go off the rails. Uh, they're oppressing people. They build a temple with slave labor. They're more concerned about their own comfort than they are about God's glory. And the text yet keeps telling you that Solomon is the son of David. He's the son of David. Solomon starts a long slide down where God eventually comes in and he takes Israel's kingdom away from them again and sends them back into exile. And when they're in exile, you have prophets, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and they all start talking about what will happen when God sends a new son of David to his people and what this will look like again when this person shows up. In Isaiah 61, it kind of gives the personality profile of what this son of David will look like. Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Well, that sounds like Jesus. Jesus said, I came to preach the good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Well, that sounds like Jesus. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Well, that sounds like Jesus. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. That sounds like Jesus. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. This is what the true son of David will look like when he shows up. And the Old Testament essentially ends with, can you imagine what it's going to look like when this guy shows up, when this son of David fixes the mess that is the human heart and empires ruled by human hearts? That's the expectancy of New Testament writers, especially in Matthew 21 when Jesus starts riding into Jerusalem. These people are asking, who is the son of David? What is he going to do? In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus shows up and he starts announcing that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of God, everybody starts calling him the son of David. Jesus heals the sick, casts out demons, speaks, preaches the good news. In Matthew 12, 23, it says, All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? 
Matthew 9, 27, Matthew 15, 22, Mark 10, 47, a blind man is sitting on the side of the road and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what people are wondering. Here comes the son of David. What kind of son is he? Is he a king? So they're asking this, but they're also demanding something. This is why they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us now. You're the son of David. You're a king. Come in, open up a can, and let's start going after the Romans. They want a war. They want Jesus to declare war on Rome. They want to fight. They bear palm branches. This is to receive a military hero or king. Here's the palm branches. The people are singing. They're shouting. They're welcoming. People's hearts, are though, are very fickle because in less than a week, they start shouting, crucify him. Because Jesus didn't hold to their agenda. They want to get rid of him. And that's how it is when you and I come to Christ and we have an agenda. We have to decide whose agenda we will honor. If we, if we want to follow our own, we'll either end up hating Christ or we will turn him into something that looks a lot like us. You must see in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus rides in as a king. He shows himself to be the son of David and he shows himself to be the Passover lamb. This is very important. So Jesus enters the city. The whole place is stirred up. If someone's been on like a bender for a week, they're just waking up and like, what's going on? It's like Jesus. Oh, okay, it's Jesus. So Matthew in his gospel shows Jesus fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, even entering Jerusalem in this way. And as soon as Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he finds a good parking spot for his donkey. And then he goes to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, he opens a can and he does something really amazing. He runs out the money changers and the people who are buying and selling livestock in the temple. This is also very important to what's going on. As soon as he does this, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing is he is showing himself to be the son of David because he is calling people to true worship. This is how it works. If you're an able-bodied Jew, 19 years of age or older, and you live within 15 miles of the temple, you are required by law to go to Passover. Jews at Passover did everything they could to get any resemblance of sin out of their home. They'd even get rid of the yeast in their home because it causes things to rise. But Jesus knows it's not just the sin in their house or the sin in their lives, but also the sin in their religion that needs to be cleansed. So he shows up and he begins to do that. And they go to the temple, there's like these animals bleeding and making noise all over the place. It's negotiations like a flea market. And people say, well, yeah, it's always terrible when religion goes bad and goes after money. That's true, but it's not that simple. The problem here is lazy worshipers. Lazy worshipers. Deuteronomy says, bring these sacrifices to the temple. And so the animals in the temple are the ones that God designated to be the sacrifice. But the people were to raise their own and then transport that to the temple supposed to work like this. You raise an unblemished animal, the best of your livestock. It's worth a lot to you. Maybe you even love it, kind of like a pet. Like, bah, there, okay, let's take that one. He likes me. And then you got to carry it, get it all the way to the temple from no matter how far away you are. And then you get there and you slaughter it. Isn't that great? Oh, how wonderful. But the sacrifice is supposed to be a grievous moment because your sin caused this. And so people are like, well, this is difficult. It's not easy to raise an animal and take it to the temple. How about I just show up with some money. Someone will have one. I can buy one from somebody. The priest can kill it. I can go home. And what began to happen was Christ coming and dying for his people began to lose the significance of what it would be when he died because people became lazy worshipers. And so Jesus comes in. He's like, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. Lazy worshipers wanted to pay someone else to do what they were supposed to do which sounds a lot like our culture today as well. Other people, though, they did bring their animals. They, they, they raised them and brought them there, and then they had to be inspected by the priests. 
had to meet certain requirements for the sacrifice. And over time, the priests then became corrupt. Maybe even they got paid by some of the people selling the animals in the temple to reject somebody's sacrifice. So you show up with your lamb, it's like, bah, here's my lamb, it's great. And they go, oh, it's not good enough. You know, we, right over, we have one right over here. Uh, this is Joe. He's a stall vendor. Uh, he'll sell you one. It's bagged and tagged. We'll carry it up there. We'll sacrifice it for you. Why ever bring your own? You get served because the customer's always wicked. Wicked. The customer's always wicked. And so the next thing you see is, is the money changers in the temple. You know, it's not wrong to make a buck, but it's wrong to extort. To go to worship at the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. If you're male, 19 or older, you paid to get in. You know why? Because everything on the planet is your responsibility, guys. Everything. Everything. And so you went and you had to pay this temple tax to pay for the good work of the temple, the priests, so that moms and widows and orphans can be taken care of, so that they can all come to worship the one true God. And so when you went to the temple, you would have to pay the equivalent of two to three days' wages just to get in. See, we don't do that to you because that would just be like, I'm never going back there, right? But to pay that, you couldn't use your own, the money that you made in the marketplace because the money in the marketplaces that you have in your pocket has the picture of the ruler of whatever country you were from on. And usually those rulers were worshipped as deities. So you had to exchange your money for temple money in order to give this money. It's crazy, right? It's like going to Chuck E. Cheese. Right? It's like, oh, I want to play the video game. Oh, I can't use my money. I got to use the Chuck E. Cheese money. You know, and you got to exchange it. We were just in Rome last week, and, and I had like 300 bucks and needed to change over for euros. They charged me like 40% to exchange. I'm like, it's like, here's my 300. Yeah, here's five. It's like, what? What are you guys? It's like, but like Jesus, I'm going to pull out a whip and chase him out of the temple. And I would just be being biblical. That's how it works. But if, but if you're a single mom and you're poor and you're broke, you can't come to the temple because of the corruption that's now taking place. All of this happens in what's called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is where people who didn't know God, who wanted to find out who the God of Israel was, they were supposed to be able to come there and find out who he was, and this is what they see. Do you see why Jesus was angry? Yeah, yeah. But can you also see why the common people are excited about what Jesus is doing? Oh, he's the son of David. He's going to cleanse this. He's going to make it right. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But, because there's always a but in religion somewhere, but when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Jesus rides in as a king. He comes as the Passover lamb. He cleanses the temple, calls people to true worship, exactly what the religious leaders should have been doing. But instead, they're giving him grief. And in verse 16, it says, Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. I think Jesus would be like, Yeah, I made their ears. What do you think? You know, yes, replied Jesus. And he looks at them like Emmanuel Tobe, I think, looked at Marty Abeg, and he says this, Have you never read, which is a little dig, don't you read the scriptures? Have you never read, From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And then what Jesus does is he leaves. And he lets them stew with it. Now, when we just simply read this, we think, Oh, yeah, it's so nice. He's ordained praise from the lips of infants and children oh how nice but there's more to this there's missing words open your bibles to psalm chapter 8 the crowds are cheering for him even the children are shouting out hosanna to the son of david the religious people they're indignant the word indignant comes from two greek words meaning much grief they're giving him much grief the priests and the teachers of the law storm over to jesus to hear what these people are saying and what jesus said would have reverberated in their ears because as religious leaders they probably had the entire old testament memorized and what they would hear is psalm 8 Two, from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. There it is. But here's what's missing. 
because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Who's the enemies? Who's the foe? It's the religious people. It's any religious people that stand in the way of what God is doing and yet calling themselves holy in the process. The psalmist says that God's glory is so great that people like children, people with childlike faith instinctively worship Him and see what He is doing to the shame of those who hate them, hate Him and have their own agenda. In the same way, these children, they're claiming who Jesus is and, and responding to His ministry in the way that the religious leaders should have been responding to His ministry but refused to. God's Word delivers this rebuke they deserve. And I think many times it's a rebuke that you and I deserve as well. When we stand in the way of what God is doing, when we stand in the way of God's glory and simply want our own, because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our king. Jesus was sacrificed for us. He does call us to true worship. But how do we respond to that? What do we respond to that? I mean, I, I have great hope that what Jesus longs to do in our lives. But I get concerned because American Christianity looks a lot like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I think someone can be fully immersed in the American Christian subculture and yet never know Christ. And that is why Jesus calls us to have childlike faith. Because we are to respond like the children did and not like the Pharisees. We are not supposed to be indignant to what God is calling us to in our lives. He wants us to see the world as He sees it. He wants us to live in such a way that we make an impact in the world the way Jesus wanted His people to make an impact in the world. That we weren't supposed to be consumed by our own comfort and what we want, but we consumed by what He wants in our lives. And so what does that look like? I can give you another sermon all on this own, but I'm just going to give you four quick points in this, how I think this looks. First one I think is bigger faith. I think it looks like bigger faith. Faith like kids who know their dad is the strongest person in the world, who know their dad is right, no matter what anybody else says. When was the last time you asked God for something big? Not for yourself, but something big to make His name great. Not like, oh God, get me a new car, but God... Show me what you want me to do so you get much glory and you are honored and people are touched and people understand the grace and the love that you have for this world. In Luke 17, 5, the disciples cry out, increase our faith. When was the last time you gave up something in your life you knew was wrong, trusting God to fully give you something better? Second thing, greater focus on Jesus. Greater focus on Jesus. Uh, the great guy of John the Baptist, I love this in John 3.30, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. John has a good thing going. Lots of converts, lots of praise, aside from the freaky diet and, and bad clothing style. But, but, the, but the second Jesus arrives, he sends everybody to follow Jesus as Messiah. It's like him, he must become greater, I must become less. Is your focus you or is it Jesus? You know a great way to figure this out? Do you get easily offended all the time? Are you always hurt by other people? That means your focus is you. Do you always feel like a victim? Your focus is you. Your focus should be upon Christ. Because when your focus is on Christ, a lot of these things just wash right off of you. Number three, fresh boldness in sharing the gospel. The book of Acts talks repeatedly about the boldness of believers. Acts 4.31, 9.28, 13.46, 14.3, 19.8. and Acts 12.24, it says, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. This is due to the boldness of believers, how they took care of each other, how they loved those around them, and how they spread the message of Christ in words and in actions. And the fourth thing is overflowing and expanding love. This is love for Jesus as well as love for those around us, those who believe and those who don't. Uh, I believe the church is the body of Christ, but we also have this thing that we call the, the church where we come and kind of gather together. The church, like this, is never meant to be exclusive. 
The church is to be the most welcoming place on the planet. It's supposed to be a people centered around the authentic community that Christ calls us to, what the gospel reveals to us. You should all be in a gospel community. You should all be in a small group. The sign-up sheet in the back. You should all sign up after we're done. That's what I'm saying. Our dilemma is do we love Jesus or do we oppose him for our own self-interest? How do we live? Because the biggest problem with religious leaders is that they had set up a theology of how everything was supposed to happen, how everything was supposed to work. Kind of like a left-behind book, just like that. You know, who's saved, who couldn't be saved, who's in, who's out. That's not our call. It is Jesus' call because Jesus makes the call. And we live with faith-like children who simply are faithful to the call that He places in our lives. But then we grow up into maturity, putting forward His name and not our own. And when he intrudes on our agenda, we bow our will to his and we follow him. The missing words shows that we all need Jesus because we have all at some point in our life lived as God's foes and enemies. But Jesus comes to restore relationship as our great king, as the one offering peace with the Father because from our lips he has ordained praise. We are to be this people who honor Him by all that we do. And we do not stand in the way of what God is doing in the lives of His people and the lives out there. And we live how God calls us to outside these walls. From our lips, He has ordained praise. We need to be a people who say, God, where you go, I will go. Where you lead, I will lead. Who you call me to love, I will love. If you tell me to stay, I'll stay. I will follow you in everything, in everything. That's one of the reasons every week we bring you guys to communion. Because communion is this place where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of Christ's blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be a redeemed people who can have lips that honor and praise Him and live the lives He calls us to so we can hear and know and love and breathe and live this life. We're going to show God through song. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs. Invite you guys as they sing the songs before you take communion, to ask God where you know where have you placed your agenda above His. You know, and there'll be deacons and elders in the back. And and if you are somebody who always has your agenda first and foremost, or you you always get offended and hurt by other people, go and pray with them, because your focus needs to be changed and reset. And only Jesus can do that. And we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then part of our worship. So. We give you the opportunity every single week. And uh, we have some actually food in the back. We, we hid it from the people at the end of first service because they just eat it all. And you're so important to us that we saved it for you. So there, there's food in the back and some coffee and stuff. Uh, go back, grab some food, get to know some other people. Hopefully in that you can make some connections and get involved in the gospel community in a small group that, uh, that you can uh, really live out the, the purpose of the gospel. I, I'll tell you, I, I actually missed you guys. I, I love being here. You're probably like, I wish you would have stayed away longer. Yeah, well, maybe, whatever. But I, I, I love being back. I, I love being with you guys. It is good to be here. A true, authentic gospel community is something that cannot be beat. God welcomed and loved us. We are to be the most welcoming people in the world. So live that way. From your lips, he has ordained praise. So praise him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we do ask that as a people... Our hearts would be surrendered to what you are doing. That we would understand and that we would know where you are leading. And that we will follow in your strength and your grace. 
God, quite frankly, every single one of us in this room at times has placed our own agenda over yours. We've gotten so consumed with things in our life that we've lost sight and focus of who you are and what you call us to. But this morning I ask that you would reset our vision, that you would have us be those whose hearts and lives are submitted to you. As we come to communion, we lay everything at your feet. And we only pick up and take what you lay in our hands. Have us be those who fully understand the grace and mercy you bestowed on us and that we would in turn bestow that on others around us so that you would get much glory and from our lips and from our lives you would gain much praise. Amen.